Well, church, this is it. This is the main event. This is the Super Bowl Sunday of the Christian faith. It doesn't get better than this. Uh, traditionally, over the past 2,000 years, this is the climax of what has sometimes been called the tri-diem, the great three-day celebration that is at the heart of the faith. Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Resurrection Sunday. And you remember, of course, the sequence of what happens. How can, how can we escape it? On Friday, Jesus executed by all of the powers that rallied against him. The religious leaders who accused him of blasphemy, Roman powers who accused him of insurrection. But whether it was, whether it was the religious establishment or the political leadership, the feeling was the same that, that there was something happening in and through this man and they perceived it as a threat, and they were all conspiring, all lined up against him. But in the end, the witness of Good Friday, the one that we can't help but, uh, but notice, is that, that it wasn't just the conspiracies of the leaders, and it, and it wasn't just the politics of Rome. It wasn't even the angry crowds, uh, a mob thirsty to see an execution. It was Christ himself who was involved in what transpired. you remember that moment? Arguably the moment when the first victory happened was on Thursday night, late into the evening, in fact, well past sunset, when you find Jesus on his knees in the garden, pleading before God. And you remember he cries out, not my will, Lord, but but thine be done. That night in the garden, one man, Sweat on his brow, fighting through fear, lonely, deserted, vulnerable. One man summons his resolve and says, I know what I must do. Jesus at the garden, I, I will not fight. Not the way the world wants me to fight, by taking up the sword and leading an army. But I will not run. Will not make a deal. I won't dance with those in power. So what's left? There in the garden, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus sets his resolve like flint, the scripture says. I will die. I will die. Not my will, but yours be done. Friday is the day, the darkest day in the history of the human race. The worst of all unimaginable outcomes, we thought. The end of Jesus, the end of everything that he was about, all of our hopes attached to him, gone. Maybe you know what that's like. It's that feeling you have when you spent yesterday at the graveside and you wake up this morning and try and figure out how to go on. It's the day after the diagnosis is given. It's the day after the pink slip is handed out. It's the day after the divorce certificate is signed. What's it like to live in the aftermath of that kind of loss? And Saturday is kind of that day of of silence where for those who know only Friday and not Sunday, I think we imagine that day will never end, that it will always be like this. Us left with our questions and and our grief and our pain. Because to be clear, nobody expected Sunday. 
at least nobody on earth, this amazing day when the stone gets rolled away and an empty tomb bears witness to the greatest of all possible miracles that against all of their understanding and and against everything that they had imagined Saturday might be, the world caving in on itself, on Sunday, he's back, bursting forth. It's Resurrection Day, and honestly, nobody saw it coming. It is the most death-defying, grave-defeating, hope-inspiring, life-giving, transcendent joy in the history of the world, and I hope you feel it, and in case you don't, we're going to give you a chance to feel it again today. The world has never really recovered from what happened on that Sunday, and thank goodness we haven't. In fact, it it changed even the way people greeted each other. You know, the way we greet each other when we first see each other has an impact. It can warm us up. It can lighten us up. It can can leave us bright-eyed and eager, or it it can knock us down. I don't know if any of you have kids in school, and you get these robocall messages when, and I should say if, if a child happens to miss a class, it would never happen in our household, of course, but, but, but you get those automatic messages say, greetings, this is Clarkson Secondary School, Richard missed period two and three and four and five. For the past four days. No, it's, but you know the message. It, it sounds so encouraging when you first get it. Greetings. And then the bad news. Richard's been skipping school. So it turns out that that word greetings says more than we think. In fact, building on that, the followers of Jesus summoned up a greeting for each other that has stood now for for 2,000 years, and I'm going to get you to lean into it with me in just a second. You did it once, but you did it kind of reading what's on the screen. We're not going to do it that way. Let's do a little bit of prep work. Have you noticed how strange it is that when we go into an auditorium for a sports event or a concert, we feel so free to express our enthusiasm and and our emotion and our ecstasy about what's going on, Surrounded by strangers, with people on the stage who we will never know personally. Why is it that we feel so free to holler with joy and jump to our feet at a game, but but not at home, certainly not at church, where we celebrate things that are far more praiseworthy? So we're going to do this greeting, and we're going to cheer if that's okay, and you can you can wave your ribbons if, if that's okay, and you can say amen. Baptists will allow you to say amen. If you want to dance, you have to go to the Pentecostal church down the road, but here's... Here's what we acknowledge today, (laughs) that there once was a man named Jesus, and he taught like nobody had ever taught, and he lived like nobody had ever lived, and he loved like nobody had ever loved, and especially, he had a heart for people who lived way out there on the margins, for, for the sick and the forgotten and the poor, those who were despised because of their wealth, those who were disliked because of their trade, soldiers and tax collectors, those who were excluded. And on Friday, his great courage, coupled with his great love, get him executed. On Friday, there is a cross and his great heart, Stopped beating. 
And what looked like a horribly tragic ending to such a wonderful life turns out to be the greatest act of love and sacrifice revealing the heart of God that the world has ever seen. On Saturday, those moments of silence so thick that you feel like you're never going to get through them. The king himself is sleeping. God's holy one tasted death and hell for you and for me. But then comes Sunday. And on Sunday, the stone is rolled back. On Sunday, the tomb is found empty. On Sunday, death has lost its sting. The grave has lost its victory. On Sunday, evil gets defeated. Death is dethroned. Darkness is derailed. The devil is demotivated. On Sunday, the tomb is emptied and our hopes are filled. On Sunday, faith is vindicated. Prophets are validated. Disciples are animated. On Sunday, sin lost. Shame died. Hope soared. Love won. And here it is, church, on your feet, if you will. Christ is risen and you say is risen indeed. Say it again. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Praise to the Lord. Amen. Well, there's a little bit of Baptist in you still. Thanks. Go ahead and be seated. Christ is risen. It means everything is different. Life Pain, hardship, death, hope, joy, everything gets transformed. Let's spend just a couple of moments looking at that beautiful chapter in Matthew 28 that Shanoa read for us. Will you open your Bible or just open up your device? Matthew 28, verses 1 to 10. And as you glance through those verses, looking particularly at the end where, where Jesus finally reveals himself, Doesn't it feel just a little bit understated? I mean, think about how we hyped ourselves up for just that one moment. Here are the women who knew him best, up at the crack of dawn to go and grieve. They'd loved him. They'd come to the tomb to mourn. The stone is gone. There's a messenger of God. And then all of a sudden, this rabbi, this man who they'd loved, who they'd seen die horribly, who they'd saw buried, Suddenly, he's right there in front of them. And you wonder, what profound, life-changing, soul-altering thing is he going to say? What will be the first words that he speaks on the other side of the grave? What does he say? Greetings. (laughs) Greetings. Literally, the closest we can come to translating it, because it was such a colloquial word, was, hey, how are you? Having a nice day? What's going on? In other words, what did you expect? In other words, didn't I tell you? In other words, your rabbi, your friend, your Lord is absent from the tomb. In other words, if God can create life for crying out loud, can he not recreate it? And if God could make you, will he not remake you? Dale Brunner, one of the the great scholars of the New Testament and a, and a deeply uh, committed Christian man. He, he talks about a day when he was trying to communicate all of this in a children's sermon. If you ever want to watch a pastor squirm, make them try and communicate the truth of the gospel to, to kids. Because if you can't do that, 
You can't do it. And so he's, he's doing his children's sermon. He asks the kids a question. He says, what, what do you think were Jesus' first words after he was raised from the dead? And a little girl raised her head. So you, you always have one of those kids, right? This little girl who, who has all the answers. And she raised her hand. She's so excited. I know, I know, she says. What is the first thing that Jesus said when he was raised from the dead? And she leaps up and says, Greetings. Ta-da! I mean, this is, isn't that great? Ta-da! Sunday changes everything. And what Jesus goes on to do next, in that passage in Matthew 28, he doesn't give a long dissertation, an explanation of how it all happened, and, and here's a, a moment-by-moment account of, of what's happened over the past 72 hours. He doesn't even talk about why it happened. He's talked about why before, and we're going to wrestle with why forever. But the first thing that he does is he gives them an assignment. Verse 10, you've got something to do now, women. You've got something to do. Go and tell the brothers. Go back to Galilee and and said, I will meet them there. I'm coming home. I'm coming home. For them and for us, Sunday changed everything, but I'm not sure that it changed it in exactly the way we think. Sometimes it it seems to me, at least as I leaf through the card section, look through Easter cards, what what a demoralizing thing to read through Easter cards and and see what has become of the message. It, It feels like the message of Easter has been reduced to this, hey, spring is coming. The sun is back. The flowers are blooming again. We can start wearing our fancy hats. Everything's going to work out okay. Some people, I mean, hard thinkers, skeptical thinkers, would even look at Easter and say the, the whole thing just feels kind of like a crutch. We give it to people who can't handle the cold reality of life and especially the harsh reality of death. And so we hand out this kind of fairy tale where all the problems get resolved and all the danger gets removed and everybody lives happily ever after, except that's exactly what Easter is not. One of the most striking things, you can't help but notice it when you read the accounts, and it's worth reading them. By the way, take a handful of chocolate and a bunch of hot cross buns. Go home, tuck yourself into a chair this afternoon, read through the Gospel of Mark. It'll take you an hour, it'll bless your socks off. Read the whole story of Jesus, and you will not miss this fact that the first, the immediate response to the risen Jesus was not just joy, but terror. People were afraid. And they should be. Sometimes we, we receive the, the message of Easter as if, listen, you don't have to worry about anything anymore. No more pain, no more dying. Uh, that's not the message of Easter. Easter didn't say you wouldn't die. I'm a newsflash. I hate to break it to you, but I will and you will. And you know that's true. What is it that did change? In Matthew We're told that these women, they are afraid, and yet they're filled with joy. This strange dynamic, two emotions that we would think can't get along, joy and fear. And very interesting, if you want to keep a thumb in Matthew, but flip with me to the parallel text in in Mark, the Gospel of Mark. This is the one you're going to read this afternoon. Mark 16, verse 8 says that after the women heard Jesus, heard the news, witnessed the resurrection, this is the response 
Verse 8, trembling and bewildered. Trembling and bewildered. The women fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone. Why? Because they were afraid. And in fact, in the oldest, most reliable manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of Mark, that's kind of the end of the story. It ends right there. Kind of an odd ending. It ends on that note of surprise, but also fear. And there's a part of us that ought to be afraid. When you are in front of a power so great that death itself trembles, you ought to be afraid. Except that Easter tells us that that power is radically inclined towards you, not against you. And then fear evaporates into joy. In the Gospel of John, yet another vantage point on on resurrection morning, we're told that after the appearance of Jesus, that the disciples, they were meeting together where? Behind locked doors. Why? Because they were still afraid. What's going on? They They had followed Jesus. They had followed him right through to the end. And they had seen what happens to people who follow the Jesus way. They get hung up on crosses. Why are they hiding? Because they're convinced that they're next, that they're on Rome's hit list, that they're on the Sanhedrin's death watch, that that they too would meet the same fate that Jesus is. And now Jesus is back, but they're not sure what to make of it. And very interesting, he appears and he doesn't say to any of his followers, hey, guess what? Your troubles are all over. Smooth sailing from here. He doesn't say, hey, let's go on up to heaven right away. Let's just have a party. He doesn't even say the hardest part is over, even though absolutely it was. What he seems to say is this, that the cross didn't win. That the cross didn't stick. That the plan to stop everything that God was doing in the world, it's going forward. That all the values of the kingdom of God, love for your enemies, a willingness to sacrifice and suffer and even die for the sake of other people, all these things have been vindicated now by my Father. And yeah, those same forces that conspired against Jesus, they're going to be really ticked off now. Pilate and the chief priests, they're already plotting to squelch this news. They're furious. They're desperate. And then you have Jesus. And if you read on in his story, what he eventually says is this. I'm going back to my father. But I'm going to send my spirit, the the ongoing living presence of God. I'm going to send it now to you, you women, you men, you disciples. You go in the midst of all of that stuff. Tell them that the cross failed. Tell them that Caesar failed, that Pilate failed, that the chief priests failed. I'm going to my father, but now they're going to have to contend with you. (laughs) So Easter wasn't an escape from the world. It was a call to radical engagement in the world. And they're starting to realize it, and it scares the pants off them. On Sunday, their lives didn't get safer. They actually got riskier. On Sunday, they find out that there is something more powerful in the world than danger or threat. They're afraid, but they're still filled with this this lasting legacy of joy. So despite what our card industry might suggest, Easter Sunday is not just some comforting little metaphor 
some ger- generic reassurance that that you can be happy even when you're sad. That flowers have a way of popping up in the cracks between the pavement. Uh, Sunday is about Jesus. Sunday means that everything Jesus had been saying about God, about life, about death, about faith, about love, about forgiveness, about the purpose of our lives, about our identity, all of it is true. And Sunday means that God who created everything is now at work making all things new. Incidentally, that's why Christians started meeting on the first day of the week, on Sunday. They recognize that creation itself took place over six days and then gets interrupted, thrown off track by by sin, but it's all beginning again. God is back at it, all things being made new. Sunday means this newness is happening not just in them, but in us. John 20, verse 17, Jesus says, Go instead. Go to my brothers and tell them, I'm returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. You know, that's the first time he's ever said anything like that before. He's prayed to my Father, but never that language, hey, my Father is your Father. He's enjoyed this closeness with God throughout his life, but never before has he said that, my God is your God. Because of who I am and what I've done, the relationship that I enjoy is now yours to enjoy. It's all possible because of Sunday. Do we have two minutes? We do have two minutes. Yeah, because we got lunch for you. I, I want to note just one, one thing, because I think this is telling. Um, and in our culture, and maybe in all cultures, but another part of new creation, in all four Gospels, the first task of evangelism of being a witness to what happened, is given to the most unlikely of folk. Early in the morning, on the first day of the week, who went to the tomb? Who were the first evangelists? Women. Why is that, why is that worth pausing and camping out over? Jesus is, is an incredible respecter of persons, all persons, the persons God has made. He, he doesn't like to see people sidelined, if it means sidelining the image and the purpose of God in them. And so the momentum of, of this new thing, this new life, it starts in the most unlikely of places. It starts with the group of women. Those who actually never left. In the darkness of Good Friday, in the fog and confusion, um, we notice by their absence, the disciples, where were they? Nowhere to be seen. Who was there? The women. And we know this to be true, that, that the witness of a woman in Jesus' culture had no value. But in Jesus, in the kingdom of God, it was of utmost value. You think of it this way, you could, it's a terrible thought, but you could commit an egregious, egregious act of violence. You could kill somebody in the presence of a hundred women. They could all witness you doing it. 
But their testimony would not be accepted and you would never be convicted or found guilty unless there was a man in the circle. Into the lives of such as these is entrusted the message of the resurrection. Doesn't that sound like a Jesus thing? In my kingdom, the first shall be last, the greatest shall be least, and I will lift you up. You see this dynamic in in, in Luke's gospel. We might as well get Luke in there. We'll get all four gospels. Luke 24, verse 9. When the women came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven, to the men, the disciples, and to others. But the men didn't believe the women. And their words seemed to them like nonsense. Imagine how frustrating that must have been to be custodians of the most amazing news in the world and just bursting to get it out and being denied. I mean, can you imagine women being patronized and dismissed by a group of men? Hmm. Maybe not so hard to imagine. Eventually, Jesus appears to the disciples. Ta-da! I would love to have been there in that moment. The men and the women together huddled, and and the men sort of looking in on each other said, Wow, Jesus is risen. The women off there in the corner said, Yeah, we know. (laughs) We know. Risen indeed. Easter changes everything, it gives people a new identity a new call, a new sense of weight and purpose, a new intimacy with God. It doesn't make life safer. I mean, forgive us if we've ever communicated that about Easter, that that this is some sort of insurance policy against hard things in life. What it does is it makes life richer. If anyone wants to be part of this movement, Jesus said, They're going to need to take up their cross and die to themselves in order to follow me. Oh, man. Why are we we wrecking the Easter message with that verse? Because the only way to Easter, really, is through Good Friday. There are some things that you're going to have to die to. There's some stuff that I'm going to have to go through in my life and release if Sunday's going to mean anything to me at all. Those who have spent their life wrestling with this, they, they know that this, this Friday, Saturday, Sunday rhythm to the gospel, that's not just a matter of history. That's, that's something deeply personal. We live Friday, Saturday, Sunday lives. We know what it means to, to live in the in-between times. When all the grief hits and all the hard stuff accumulates, we know what Good Friday life is like. But because we also know what Sunday means, we can join with those Christians who, who finally started figuring it out and saying things like this, Galatians 2.20, Hey, you know what? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Jesus who now lives in me. They got it. 
I've got a new story now. There's this part of me. It's selfish. It's sinful. It's messed up. It corrodes my conscience and it wrecks my relationships. And it separates me from a holy God. They call all that the old self, the old nature. That part, that part has to die. You see, the the gospel is not so much that on Friday Jesus died so that we don't have to. The gospel is that on Friday he died so that what's worse than me dies with him. I'm crucified with Christ. That part that's distorted and dark, those habits that I'm ashamed of, I can't control them, I can't stop them, I surrender them to God, I take them to the cross. Early Christians would say things like, we know that our old self was crucified with Jesus. Romans 6, 6. We're no longer slaves to sin anymore. We've been freed from it. I'm not what I once was. I'm becoming something new. And God sees me in this way. God calls me his brother or his sister. Romans 6, 6. They'd say things like, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, they're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And they talked about it using the language of rebirth. In fact, the word that, that Paul loves to use for rebirth, it, it actually, it, it's not so much a function of anatomy as it is of transformation. The word is, I'm going to make scholars out of all of you. The word is metamorpho. Guess what English word we get from metamorpho? Metamorphosis. To change. We shall not all sleep, Corinthians said. We shall be changed in a moment, in a heartbeat, in the twinkling of an eye. Our baby, uh, uh, our youngest son, turns 18 in a couple of weeks. I, I, he was seven when we came to the church. It's hard to imagine. But I, I can remember at seven or eight when he discovered via Netflix a crazy, crazy show. Some of you will remember it. Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Do you remember that jam? Just this cheesy show. I think it came out originally in Japan because it was subtitled. It follows this exploit of a, of a group of kids. And their rallying cry when they came together was, it's morphin time, right? And then they'd get power and they'd do extraordinary things. Well, here it is. For those first followers of Jesus, terrified, amazed, stunned, staggered, what Sunday came to mean for them, but I hope it means for us. It's morphin time. We shall all be changed. That doesn't mean, just so that you can't go home and start poking your significant other in the ribs, it doesn't mean that suddenly you're perfect, or I am. That old self, it just, keeps trying to come climbing back up out of the grave, but the clock is ticking on that. And I'm being remade. And Jesus regards me as a brother and you as brothers and sisters. And when I falter and when I fail, I remember Friday and I remember that cross and the love and sacrifice that sees him hung out there for the world to see. And I, and I sing as we sing, love amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And so I confess again. I repent. I say, Father, 
You help me once again to die to all of that. To make amends to the people that I've hurt. And then I let go. And I refuse to allow sin and failure and the inadequacies of life to define me anymore. If you, if you want a line to take from Easter Sunday into your Sunday afternoon, maybe take this one. Easter means it's okay to believe that God loves you. It's okay to believe that God loves you. And because of Jesus, it means that, that my story, your story, is a Friday, Saturday, Sunday story. And it's all about God. And it just so happens to be about you. Here's where we're going to pause for a moment and just allow a little bit of time for for some reflection. Easter demands a response. I mean, it, it really does. You can, you can ignore it. You can dismiss it. Um, you can pander to the idea of God, but deep inside you have to do something with that Friday, Saturday, Sunday story. I don't know, have you... Have you ever found yourself at a place where you've said, I just, I need to leave it behind. I need to die to that part of myself. I need to leave it at the cross. I, I need to be made alive again in Christ. I, I need that metamorphosis. Have you ever responded? This is Easter Sunday. <laughs> that means we're probably full on a day like this and Ways that we don't see many other days. And for me, that's a delight. I, I love to see families together. I, I love to see people enjoying the worship and the presence of God together. But it also means we have a chance to connect with God in ways that maybe we've not done in a long time. I mean, maybe you have come here Sunday by Sunday for years but it's just never really settled into the right place in your life. Or maybe you're here and it's been a long time. And yet God is doing something in your life this morning, whatever it is. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me. I don't know what God needs to say to you right now. I know that there's all kinds of ways that we throw up barriers. We're going to pray that you not do that right now. Maybe you've been a long way from God for a long time. Or you've done some things you're not proud of. Or you've wrecked some things in your life or the lives of others. I want you to know this. In Jesus, in Jesus you have a Heavenly Father who says, Just come home. Just come home. I, I love you more than you know. And so that this would be the most amazing Easter weekend you've ever had. If you have never reached out to God and prayed like this before, I'm going to invite you to pray with me right now and say simply this, Here I am, Lord. Here I am, and it's taken me a while to get here, but I give my life to you. I want to make Friday good Friday for me. 
I want to receive grace, not because of what I've done, in spite of what I've done sometimes, Lord, because of what you've done through Jesus, through the cross, because of his great love for me. And then, God, I I want to make this Jesus my Savior, my guide, my leader. I want a new reason to live, a new identity, a new hope to live for. And if you've prayed that prayer, then I want you to savor God's promise for you today. In Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. I'm going to invite you, when we're finished in prayer, to to tell somebody about this moment in your life. Sometimes the good news is too good to keep it to ourselves. But now, Father, for every one of us, we are, we are grateful beyond words for this day and for the reminder that there once was a man, Jesus, who walked the earth and brought hope and healing and forgiveness and love like no one ever has or ever will. So, God, we, we give you our worship and our praise. We do it together. We do it in the name of that hope bringer, that death defier, that grave defeater, that life giver. We do it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite the worship team to come and join me on the stage, but we're not done quite yet. I mentioned we've got, we've got lunch for you. There's, there's enough food there. I don't want you to leave without feeling the full wonder and blessing of God today. So if you prayed a prayer like that for the first time, we're going to invite you. We're going to have our leaders here at the front. We're going to invite you to come forward just so that we can rejoice with you and pray for you. And if you've come this morning with a burden that feels too heavy to carry, we don't want you to carry it out with you. So come forward and receive prayer for that area of need. And if uh, if you just want to know the blessing of God, just come forward and receive a blessing from God. We will, for the next few minutes, be available here at the front, our leaders, and it will be our honor and our privilege to pray with you. Will you come? Will you come?